One of the uh, forms I use on retreat, which I think is um, extremely uh, helpful uh, to retreatants, is that uh, when the bell is rung uh, throughout the day, people stop. They don't just move to where the bell is pointing. So it's not just a question of the bell signifying the next place I need to be. <clears throat> and I asked them to pause <coughs> Uh, for a very important reason, uh, because the pause takes them out of the trance of their thinking. The trance of their thinking just leads to a logical next step. Bell rings, I need to be at the meditation hall. Next bell, oh, it must be lunch. That bell must be the end of the sitting. And we can, even on retreat, when what we're supposed to be doing is disrupting that continuity of thought, it's... Uh, more probable that we're following it, in it, we're following it anyway. Uh, and when we hear the bell that asks for us to break that trance, uh, we feel impatient uh, because we are being disrupted from what we really want to do, which is in a continue following whatever the thought may be direct, wherever the thought may be directing us. And uh, so. Uh, this, this sense of form meaning something else besides just what we have labeled and defined it, it to be uh, is, a, is really an access, a way to access something other than uh, life lived in the confines and in the um, constriction of just what definitions do to our life moment after moment. We, are li we live within what, how and what we define everything around us. And the world represents in its definitioned way exactly how we define ourselves in that moment. We are a mirror of what we are doing to the world at any particular period of time. So if in front of you is a lot of definitions, is a lot of judgment, and is a lot, then you can be sure that you are doing exactly the same thing to yourself and how you perceive yourself in the world. You see your, the world as objects, defined objects, and you're seeing yourself as a defined subject. And yet, these four foundations that we are engaged in and practicing now are really to lift us up out of the form into another whole orientation to life. And I don't know. I mean, many of us just, uh, we'd like to hear it. It sounds like something that we appreciate hearing, but we're reluctant to actually give ourselves over to the process of that evolution. We like to hear the bell and the definition that the bell is supposed to be paused when we hear it, but we really want to continue on in our way in the direction that we know prior to the bell ringing. And so this, this it gets very complicated because our heart is close to the surface, it's beating, it hears the possibility of freedom, and yet our mind is entrapped within the distinctions that it's making and the conditioning that it has lived with its whole life and continues to follow that path uh, rather, uh, rather um, conditionally. <clears throat> so at some point, Actions really need to follow our intention, all right? So when we, when we really feel um, 
that this is a meaningful, uh, a meaningful path for us. And we get a sense of the practice within it, which is what we've been doing for these last two years. Then the actions, allow the actions to follow it. And just to use the uh, example of the bell, so that we actually stop. And when we find ourselves thinking our way through the bell ringing, release the need to have to thought, think. And follow the bell towards a formlessness. Towards not its definition, its next pointing, which is to get to some place, but actually as an invitation towards a completion, towards a wholeness. It rings itself into wholeness. And so uh, with the proper practice, with the proper intention, we can start actually moving ourselves into this shift of paradigms that I've been talking about. Now that shift, for many of us, goes very slowly. It's not a automatic. It's something that uh, we, like to we like the feeling of our own density, of our own problem resolution. It gives us a sense of self-importance. I remember I was coming out from being a monk, uh, and the first job I took was in Houston in a hospice program, and they gave me a pager. I'd never had a pager. Uh, pagers weren't even around when I'd gone into, <laughs> gone into my, uh, my years of isolation. And so they, they, this thing, it felt very, yeah, you know, it's like really, like, it gave me, and I, I, I recognize, I saw it in myself, but I felt kind of important, like somebody needed me when I had a pager, and it, it just, it was funny, you know, it just, it just kind of, it brought a kind of density uh, into me, but a density that I appreciated, and many of us now, I mean, a pager is the minor, uh, gadget around our belt uh, and and we just but there's a there's a sense that each thing is a link to some sense of importance or some sense of connection and we use the artificial technological world to build that sense of connectedness and importance so density isn't doesn't resolve itself uh, unless we're willing to look at what it is that we're getting from the density. What is it that we're, we're feeling here? So when I look at my own self-importance, I mean, what is that? Uh, not just the feeling of it as true, but really what is self-importance? What we go underneath the conditioning and ask a very important question to begin to uproot that need to be self-important. Why is self-important important to me? What does it offer me? What does it give me? What, is it, what does it firm up? You know, uh, and uh, we can feel that. We can sense that. And that's where the questions begin to uproot the very places in, within the conditioning where we stand and study ourselves. Now, this movement from form, taking ourselves to be a person separate from, and looking from that point of view out onto the world of separate objects, each separated from all the other objects that we see in our field of 
awareness, uh, begins to uh, lessen over time. It, it, it becomes lighter. It becomes less dense. And how does that happen? It happens through our willingness to look at what the limitations of the objects that we have taken to be so important in our life. When we make a serious attempt to divest ourselves from the life that we have chosen to lead and all the things we think about getting from that life and actually ask important questions about those, uh, those particular projects we have or particular uh, images that we hold, when we really look at whether pleasure-seeking is that important to me and whether it gives me the benefits that I envision it will, when I start looking at it objectively, seeing it to see whether I'm getting the benefits from life that I have invested my time and energy in, we see that we don't. And that's a, that's a uh, most of us uh, have some uh, inroad into that just through having lived a certain number of years. Just the wisdom of aging has shown you that life uh, is very different than it was when you thought about it at age 20. Is it not? And so there's a, there's a shift of energy out of form. It just doesn't, the payoff isn't that great. I mean, what you get is at the most, all, the most the form can give you is pleasure. That's the most. It can't give you anything else. And if you experience pleasure, you see that it's just an unlasting experience, an experience that simply doesn't endure. And we spend so much time trying to get milk life to be pleasurable. And yet, what is pleasure? You see, you keep asking those questions the next step down, those places that we're afraid to ask because we're afraid that the way we appointed our life is misdirected and in fact it is but unless we ask those questions and come what may with the answers we never divest the energy from the world that needs to be divested so that the form that we have believed in and keep creating perceptually the energy in that becomes, ex starts to be extracted. Where does that energy go? The thir first law of thir thermodynamics says that there's a conservation of energy, that energy cannot be created or lost. So the, and it's also true spiritually. That energy that went into the investment in form to being a defined thing in my life, when it's, when it is seen for what it is, that energy begins to be extracted. And where does it go? It goes the only place it can go, into the formless. It's either invested in the form or it's in the formless. There's no other two, there's only two places. It's either in your thoughts or in the awareness that holds the thought. If you're not believing the thought, then it'll be in the awareness that holds the thought. All of us, or many of us, have had that experience where you're sitting and suddenly you're hearing your thought because you're not invested in the thought as being important to you. And that energy that went into the importance of the thought now goes into the awareness that hears the thought. 
And so to our life begins to shift in that way. Into the objects that have meant so much, into all the different ways I've made my life um, important and dependable materialistically gets divested. And what happens then is it begins to heal the rift of individual objects. Individual objects start coming together because individual objects are no longer seen as individual objects. They're now seen being held within the, in the, um, in the awareness that is not divided. And when the awareness that is not divided is invested in, the formless, then the objects cannot sustain their individuality. Are people following this? <laughs> Just get it theoretical if, if you aren't getting it in actuality. Because it's important. I mean, what's all, it's all we're doing here. It's what any spiritual tradition is ever doing. Well, I mean, what do you th- when Christ said, don't lay up your treasures where rust doth corrupt or thieves let in? It's no different than what we're saying here. Investment in form leads to a form-related life. And it will, investment in form leads to someone who believes themselves to be a part of that form and will act in accordance as a form. A form, an isolated entity, will bump up against other entities. There will be conflict. There will be struggle. That's what forms do. When you take yourself out of the hole, you've got a problem. And you try to solve that problem through other means that forms have. They don't have the ability to unite and connect and interconnect because that would take them out of form. So rather they try to gather, collect, and procure. That's the equivalent in form language to interconnection. You see? So I gather things around me so that I'll have plenty of connection with things that I own. And so it becomes ownership. Greed becomes the factor, the mental state of choice because that's the driving force that allows you to expand your form bigger than other forms. It's just, so in whatever way we have invested in ourselves as individuals and in the world as being particular and individuated, that's what we're rising, that's what we're divesting from in spiritual work. That's what Buddhism is. If you think that maybe you got into the wrong tradition, you were hoping for something else, well, you know, it's probably better to go to a different Sangha because that's the fact. I'm not going to reframe it to make it pretty. And so we, we begin to actually look at what we, where we have mislaid our treasure, so to speak, metaphorically. And it's not in, it's not in anything that I have thought that about. It's not in how I have translated the world to make it work for me meaningfully. And so there's, there can be a despairing interlude between the form and the formless where the despair of what I wanted from the world isn't being offered to me or given to me in the way that I wanted it 
and yet I have nowhere else to go. I haven't, I haven't decided yet to switch paradigms. In fact, we do not decide to switch paradigms. Paradigms switch themselves when we're no longer investing in form. That goes into the formless, and we find ourselves there. In fact, it's a very important spiritual point. Because if you think you're going to switch, switch forms, if you think you're going to pull yourself from one form into the other through your will, well, that's not the way it happens. Not the way it happens. You, the energy is what moves you, and the energy can't be tricked. If, if you, you have to understand why this paradigm isn't working, and then the energy goes to the other paradigm. So the way, the way to do that is through understanding, not through will at all. It has nothing to do with will. You can't force it, but you can't understand it. And that's where questioning comes in, you see? That's an extraordinarily important point because we won't use questioning, this sense of, of, of investigating and looking, and just in the way I've been saying, well, is this giving me what I want? Am I getting from this what I want? Well, I have a certain expectation of what it will offer me, but is that in fact what it's giving me? Or is it giving me pleasure at best? And what is pleasure and how long does it last? And where is pleasure coming from? See, that, now we're going right on through the different foundations and through understanding. And suddenly, each, each time we look and ask questions that are deeper and richer than the ones before, more of the energy gets extracted from that particular entrapment that it was in. But the, so that's why we keep our questions very superficial. Most of our questions we want are just conditioned questions. We want to know, we want to know how to fix things. Though that's a form question. Form wants to know how to fix the problems it has so that it can be a smoother form, be a prettier person, be, improved, be an improved person, be an improved character. And so improved characters make you a nicer form to be around. But they do nothing to extract you from the paradigm you're in. And that's ultimately where spirituality has to go to be completely satisfied. So it's a, it's a very key point. And the only tool, there's only one tool that will allow that transformation to be complete. Not your will, not your, your effort to do so, but simply your willingness to ask those questions, the questions that are in front of you about the conditioning you're already in, and to see whether that conditioning is, is as complete and total and satisfying as you think it is. It takes a lot of defense mechanisms to continue to believe that the world will pay off in the way we hope. Because when it doesn't pay off, you're, even, you're left with the raw data that this doesn't work, which is unacceptable. So the better solution is to say that uh, just blame it on circumstances. Uh, you know, we, 
the weather conditions, or you don't have the right partner, or you didn't, you know, you were, your mother did it to you. <laughs> endless, endless ways that we can rationalize and excuse our lives from taking them seriously. So when you take them seriously, we're in the fourth foundation now. Now we're in the foundation of discernment. Remember, the third foundation was passive, was passive discernment. That is just seeing. Beautiful. It's beautiful. I'm not in any way making this a hierarchy. Just noticing what's there and not adding anything to it. Beautiful. Third foundation. Beautiful. And you really see how much we invest in life to keep it and sustain it to be pleasurable. Right? The pleasure is coming from us. We invest in the object. Then we love the object and we try to collect the object. We only collect the object because we've invested our desire for it and our pleasure of it in it. It's coming from us. We're chasing our own tail. Can't look at that though. That's too scary. That's too frightening. So we put the pleasure in the object. Now we're safe because if we think that the pleasure is in the object then there's something to pursue. Oh, okay, so now I'll pursue the world. Great, but you're only pursuing your own mind. You're in hot pursuit of your own thought. Now, what are you going to do? Because you've seen it. You can't pretend you didn't see it. You saw it. That was the second foundation. So you get to the point where you're not going to invest anymore. You're going to see what's there when you're not investing. That's the third foundation. Just this. Oh, so just this. Just this. I'm not adding anything. Just this. And seeing something as just this when you're not investing it with anything makes it transparent. It starts becoming porous. It's, it breaks up. What, it, what we defined it to be begins to break apart. And lo and behold, you find yourself in the fourth foundation just from having seen just this. But just this doesn't stay just this for most people. We get pulled back down into the struggles of our life, into the turmoil and the fixes and the conditionality of our life, and we lose just this. So we have the fourth foundation. Fourth foundation uh, allows us to discern. That means we have to be very quiet with what we see because we learned in the third foundation that if we add anything to anything, it's our minds that we're looking at. And just looking at our opinion of an object, not the real object, right? So we when we get quiet and we're not imparting or projecting our thoughts onto something, we can begin to see what that something really is. And so now we're into an active discernment. An active discernment is taking and pondering where it is that we keep getting caught in, in the fly trap. Why, what, why, what's going on here? Because there's a lot, just because we've seen through the substantiality of the world doesn't mean we're finished at all. We have a lot to clean up and without the ability to question nothing gets cleaned. 
And most of us, we don't, aren't sure whether we know how to question. It seems like it just takes us into an intellectual pursuit. But I want to assure you that almost to a person you do. Last week, some of you went through the dyads. And some of you who were willing to do that began to take a question, what am I dependent upon in this moment? And not turn it into an intellectual answer. You say, what am I dependent upon this moment? You actually lived your life for a moment and saw dependency as it actually was acting upon you. Perhaps you saw that you wanted the person you were going to give the answer to to like you, and that dependency had you turn the answer you would have given into a slightly different format so that it would be more appreciated. And you saw that. You saw it coming up. It wasn't a thought. It wasn't an analysis. You saw that as you were responding. And you go, oh my god. So the willingness to ask. Also, you started actively discerning the first day of the first time you ever did meditation. You were encouraged to go to the breath and to choose the sensation of breath over the thought. You had to discern which was which. That wasn't an obvious, that's not obvious. When all we have done our whole life is lived with each thing, a thought being imparted to each thing, and then all of a sudden you're in a practice which separates those two out, that causes a lot of, of turmoil. Because what does it mean? What do you mean I'm thinking about? What, what does it mean I'm thinking and not feeling my breath? It doesn't mean anything. But, so then you have to get quiet and you begin to see breath and then thought. And then you see breath and then you're lost in thought for 20 minutes. And you think, well, that wasn't breath. <laughs> so now I'm back to breath two breaths and then thought for 10 minutes. Well, that wasn't breath. This is breath. That is. So you, all of a sudden you're learning discernment is coming in there, you see? That's, so it's just, it's just that easy. Don't complicate it. Don't make it something that, uh, that is you know, any more difficult than that. Knowing your motivation for something. Feeling it as it's actually occurring, not in abstraction. I'm mo mostly my motivation is about, no, it's not about that ponderance. It's about f feeling the motivation as it's not, hearing the thought of the motivation. Now, that does require a certain steadiness of attention. So active <laughs> discernment does require uh, some uh, willingness to steady one's attention so that one is not just being swallowed up with every thought as it's arising. So if you find that when you ask yourself or start looking and your discernment is so confused about what you're seeing, it's quite likely you just need a little more focus, a little more samadhi, a little more steadiness. So you focus in on that particular aspect of your practice to encourage that forth and then the discernment will follow along with that skill. 
So I want to talk tonight about uh, five ways that active discernment help us. I like these one, two, three, four, five. <laughs> but looking at our time, we might not get through all five, but never mind. But before I do that, I want to suggest a couple of questions that you might want to ask yourself uh, to start the ball rolling, okay? To, to get serious and sincere and honest with what you're doing. And as I've mentioned in previous classes, and I want to reemphasize, the answer, the what the, the, whatever the answer is, is not the sincerity. It's the willingness to ask. That's where the sincerity is. Okay, so along those lines, what part of me does not want to see clearly? All right, what, do, what don't I want to see? Now, we all have closeted areas of ourselves where you just have shut off access to any kind of awareness at all. So just being honest with that. Doesn't, the fact that you have that is perfectly normal in this insane world. <laughs> but the willingness to see where it is that you will not go is honesty and sincerity. Once you see where you're will, not willing to go, you've already seen. You've already gone. You're already stepped into that. And then it just starts pulling you further. So the first step is the all-important one. Okay, so what is it? What part of me just doesn't want to see clearly? Where do I want to hide my life? I think it's a fine question. Or, here's one, is Buddhism pulling me putting me to sleep or waking me up? What am I using it for? That's a really important question. This song is about waking up. This song really only has one intention. But you can find Buddhism Ambient Buddhism, <laughs> 10 milligrams. You can find it as a drug, as a way to just lull you into more refined sense of pleasure. Because the mind contains that. There's no question that the mind contains that. The willingness to say, oh, that's what I'm after, that's what, that's what I want, or that's where I've been going. Oh my God, let me at least wake up to that fact. Let's, I don't care. I'm not going to stop it necessarily, but am I getting from Buddhism what I wanted in the direction I am now pointed? And in the direction I am pointed and using it as a, as a drug, is that satisfactory? Those are the questions that arise. And you can feel that. Is it satisfactory to you? Is it complete? Is it, does it feel, yeah, this is what I wanted from it. And if so, okay. That's okay. Stay as long as it welcomes you. But be willing to look and see. There are times in people's life when 
taking, being, having a distraction is the perfect remedy to what it is that's going on. Or to just need the healing space of calm and quiet. Right? Because of the tensions. And, so it's not that that's wrong, it's just limited. And so as, so for a while it works fine, and then when you overstay your welcome, you'll feel a, you'll feel a, you'll feel a rub. That rub is very important to begin to, to become more and more sensitive to where the rub of our overstay, what it feels like to overstay, and the rub of that. Where, where you just start, start feeling, you know, that not alive. And wherever you rest, you will not feel alive. Not for long. Aliveness doesn't have that sense of fixation at all. So, okay, so let me move on. Uh, to uh, uh, these questions, these active discernment benefits. Remember, the active discernment now is the tool of choice for us to be able to move our practice from form to the formless. Now, the fo I keep get, getting sidetracked here and not getting to the five things, but... <laughs> <laughs> the Beginning to extract yourself from the form into the formless, there still feels like two things, doesn't there? Form and formless. And so that division, wherever there's a division, wherever there's an alternative place to be, that's not the totality of the experience. That's not whole, that's not complete. That's dualistic. So, but, it's, but there's a tremendous revelation and transformation occurs when we extract ourselves from a paradigm that we've held to be completely and totally true, which is the one we're in. And as we pull ourselves out of that and we catch a glimpse of another possibility, the transformation is, I can't underestimate the value it has on your spiritual life. And then the resolution, the resolution of of the boundary between where I've been and where I now want to go, that also becomes the next step in one's awakening. Is to not, no longer create any boundaries whatsoever, even between form and formless. Okay, but that's a step, that's a step on down the way a little bit, that maybe I'll get to before this series ends. But just to realize that we're not stepping from one thing into another that it, this truth, this nirvana, this freedom is either immediately accessible now within the perceptions that are occurring or it's inaccessible, period. No matter how much work and turmoil I go through to procure. And that should be a sign of hope for you, that you need not leave yourself at all or distort anything. But you do need to be hungry. You need to be hungry. And that hunger comes from the extraction of energy, in investment in energy, in the paradigm we have been in. What it feels like as that energy 
gets extracted is spiritual hunger. That's what it feels like. So, so <laughs> the five values of active discernment. The first is to empower us to look critically at what has been said to us so that the practice really becomes our own. Uh, another teacher says that we loan our authority to a teacher. And for a while that's fine because it gets us on track and it gets us going. But at some point it's real important for us to be autonomous in our empowerment. And uh, so we will attend lectures or somebody, I used to go to only people, only teachers who I felt knew more than I did that could offer me something. And so you, you leave teachers. You stay until you feel that you know that you can talk to them uh, level and absolute equality. Then you go off to somebody who can give you the next step up. And so you, what you're doing all along the way, though, is that you're taking the words that they're using and you're finding your own fulfillment, just as the Buddha mentioned in the Kalama Sutta, you're finding your own realization within those words. <clears throat> and what you sometimes find is that teachers don't know the difference between the wisdom, their wisdom and their ignorance. They don't know the difference, so they talk about both. And so each one of us feels within ourselves what, whether, what is being said resonates with our own wisdom or whether it's like, huh? And that's where we start picking out the shaft from the wheat. And, but still we have to look at those parts of, that we feel are realized, that we need to realize. It's not just a matter of hearing it and memorizing it and then going forth. It's a matter of realization. It's a matter of actually translating that into an experiential reference for ourselves so that there is no doubt left at all about what is being said. And the conclusion of realization is the loss of any doubt about that particular thing. If I say, say things change, for almost all of you, you would say, I agree with that. But when you realize that things change, your life changes. You no longer pretend, as an intellectual understanding, things change, and yet secretly you just keep surrounding yourself and protecting everything as if things could be protected. When you realize things change, you realize nothing can be protected. And so there's a deep realization that needs to come along with each of these gifts of wisdom. <clears throat> I don't know about you, but I spent much of my life trying to ask questions, my Dharma life, trying to ask questions so that I could get an intellectual satisfaction to them. I remember I was a young college student and there was an old uh, psychology professor who was retiring and he invited my girlfriend and another couple over and I went along because I was coupled with this girl that he invited. And, uh, you know, I was, 
I was just full of questions, and I just wanted to question him about, you know. But he, he had seen 10,000 of me in his 50 years. <laughs> he could care, he, I was nothing. And he wanted to go out and show us the garden. <laughs> he was just wanted to talk about the flowers. I didn't want to talk about the flowers. I was looking at the, you know. And there was the other couple, the man was actually in, in a ministry. And uh, he spent all this time connecting with that man. And, to, and at a certain level of experience, you know, more facts, more facts don't satisfy, do they? Have you noticed that? I mean, it's fun to learn something new, but the learning something new is what's fun, not once you've learned it, is it? Once you know it, it's no fun anymore. Why is that? Because it was the learning. It was the openness. It was the, it was the question that held the wonder. So, When we want to open to our own self-wonder, we have to ask questions of the secret parts of ourselves. The, the parts, you know, we can't find the sacred in this world. Holding Nothing is sacrosanct. Everything needs to be open. This is, there's, you have to open the closet and all, come on out. All the skeletons have to be, that's why I love Halloween. Because it's it's actually it's a it's a holiday honoring our shadow. Did you know that? And so instead of you know like oh, oh witches and uh, it's like witches, <laughs> <laughs> the witch in each of us, huh? Right, the dark side. Looking at the dark side. Okay, so second, second of the five, it shows us our pattern of dependency, active discernment. It shows us where we're fixed, where, we're, where we just want our conditioning. You, have you noticed that, you know, like um, when I do yoga in the morning, I just want to do the same postures. I don't want to have to do any, you know, I don't want any, I don't want any change of routine because I can just go along and do them and then not have to think. Well, not having to think is fine, but when it's just the same thing and there's no awareness within yoga, something's amiss there. So, okay, I got to change this around a little bit. Where are we fixed? Where is it the same patterns keep arising? And we keep bringing the problem to the circumstances. Oh, you know, relationship. I'll tell you some big ones, right? Relationship, job. It's always my coworkers. You know, I never get along with them. And a partner, they last about three months until, you know, I see through them after that. Right? They no longer, they don't excite me enough. Or whatever it is. The consistency, repetitiousness of something has to be explored there. Invite yourself in. Invite yourself into that. What's going on? Instead of just confirming the judgment 
from the conditioning, look and see what the conditioning involves. What's going on in you that closes you, each of us down in that moment? The third one. It focuses the mind with interest and opens the heart. I love that. It's, a be- it's just beautiful what questions do. You know, there's no way, let's just all agree to this. There's no way through this thing without tenderness. There's, you're not going to get a, those males of you that want, you know, I'm not going to be, well, then you're not going to be spiritual because the access to the sacred comes through tenderness, comes through openness, comes through vulnerability. And that's usually the reason that three-quarters of any sangha are women. Because it doesn't fit the male script. But that doesn't mean, that doesn't equate with weakness, which is what we tie it to. To protect the culture from the sense of sacred, we take the sacred, access the doors of the sacred, and call them weak. We label it in such a way that nobody wants to go through those doors because if they did, it would ruin the culture. It would ruin the economy of the culture. Tender-hearted. Caring. Right? The fourth, it shows the limitation of knowledge. Fair enough. Because when, just as I mentioned, when you're learning something, the learning is the beauty. Once it's learned, it's like, I don't know, I just, I used to think taking notes was great, and I'm not discouraging or encouraging that. But I never, once I, wrote it down, which was a learning, I never looked at it again. Because it was dead. It was the hearing it and the inspiration of the hearing that lifted the whole thing up. So it's an active. All this is done in present time. All of these words are in present time. And knowing derives a certain persona from people who know a lot, a certain righteousness from the opinions of which we have inscribed or subscribed to. It gives us a sense of uh, security because what is unknown is insecure. And again, you can see why we don't go through the door of insecurity because it opens the door to tenderness, full-heartedness. Keep that door closed and get ourselves back into the knowing. So the universities become our cathedrals. The more I know, the heart farther up I get raised in the academic. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not criticizing. It's just that we have to realize that that's not the avenue. That's not the door of the sacred. The door of the sacred requires the formless, 
not what you know. The world of the form is only what you know the world to be. That's what form is. It's what we know it to be. The world of the formless is what you do not know. To access what you do not know, you have to go through the gate of insecurity. There's no other gate that allows us to come into the unknowing. The gate of wonder, the gate of tenderness, the gate of caring, the gate of love. And the fifth, that questioning is itself the gate. That I, that's a means, but it's also the ends. Because that state of questioning, that state is a state of being open. When we're asking ourselves a question, we haven't determined the answer. So it's a state of innocence, innocence again. You see how these words grate on us? Innocence, insecurity, not knowing, tenderness, they're like the worst things in the world. Nobody wants that. We've given him such a, uh, such a, a disparaging meaning that when you feel that happening to yourself, you think there must be something wrong with my practice. I'm starting to care. <laughs> now we're beginning to talk about the shift of paradigms because the shift of paradigms is moving out of a virtual reality that our thoughts cannot enter and it's very quiet very connected and satisfaction doesn't isn't represented in distance or time and so we'll stop there tonight can we just sit for a moment So I would ask everyone to stay until we're completely finished with the evening. If you would, if you have to catch a bus, that's fine. Or if you have to go home to relieve a babysitter or something like that, that's fine. But for the most part, we come from 6.45 to 8.45, so that's important. It's like somebody jumping off the ship before it's landed. You think, what happened to that man? It affects all of us when somebody leaves. So any questions or comments for just a few minutes before? Yes, sir. So when you're moving from the form to the formless, doesn't that kind of disrupt all of your relationships that you've developed? The question is, when you're moving from the form to the formless, doesn't that disrupt all the relationships? Uh, and just in the opposite way, it actually 
uh, allows more attention to be paid to relationships that are meaningful. And so instead of taking your partner's <coughs> words with what you already know they're going to say long before they even say them, you actually re-listen, retune yourself to that person. You're taking nothing for granted, right? It doesn't dismiss everything into a blob of homogenized vanilla. It doesn't do that at all. It makes each moment um, precious in itself. And because it's an unknown, everything is attended to in a very deliberate and very open way, you see? So you're willing to listen, because listening is the avenue of that sense of connection. Does it create a certain amount of angst? Or, you know, Where would the angst come from? Just because all your relationships are, are I, don't, I, I don't know. Well, uh, I mean, some relationships will not find you very interesting anymore because you're not talking about forms or not that interested in form. So some of those would drop away. Other people, when we were pretentious to them, that is we tried to get them to like us by being sweet or kind, not kind, that's genuine, but nice. Uh, and then all of a sudden you feel authentic and you no longer invest in being nice. And people invested in you because you were or used to be nice. Then they depart. <laughs> but a whole new group comes in. People who value authenticity rather than uh, presentation. Right? And so that does change. Uh, but usually a spousal relationships and Certainly children, child relationships don't change at all. They just grow and get enhanced. And that's, and also work doesn't necessarily change. I mean, nothing really has to change at all. And yet everything changes, you see? So don't let your mind, questions like that, and I certainly appreciate the question, but they're questions that try to talk you out of it. It's the mind's, the mind tries to foresee what it must be like and then it, comes up with and conjures up an image. Oh, this must be terrible. I'm, I'm not going to give up my wife and my kids. I don't care how good the formless is. <laughs> but, it does, but we'll talk ourselves out of it because that's where the mind will project its discomfort. You see? And it doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. But the mind is constantly looking for reasons or way, a way out. It wants to, an escape route here in case this gets too uh, unsettling. Okay, so we're going to stop tonight because we've got uh, a presentation that we're going to have. And I want to uh, just uh, say how important I think these remaining weeks are of this topic. We're going to go through most of this year and then start something else in the new year. So we only have a few more weeks. And it holds, it holds it holds something very, it's like this treasure. You know, we've gone through, you've done the pilgrimage, you've dug the dirt up, you've got the thing, you've opened up the box, and you, ah! It's like this, something's very precious here. 
And if you apply yourself to it, it will be, it will feel that way for you. It will feel that way. And then you can come at your own time and your own pace. You can bring out the details of it. But you'll know the preciousness of it immediately because your heart will rise. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.